We're going to uh, do a Touch Mall podcast here, and also we're going to show you or explain to you how you can win a Brian Dozier bobblehead just by answering a trivia question. Yep. So let's fire this thing up. Let, yeah, let's just start the podcast episode. Oh, and we should tell them, too, trivia. There's a uh, Twins trivia question coming up on this episode of the podcast that you can win a Brian Dozier bobblehead. I literally just said that, actually. Yeah, I should have been listening, I guess. <laughs> let's just get going. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed saying touch them all. Way back and done. Touch them all, Joe Maurer. And now these guys are making it relevant to this year's Twins. It's a beautiful now, our two resident hardball nerds will attempt to touch them all on the week's news surrounding the Twins in MLB. I didn't know they still had a team. That's baseball. Here's Phil Mackey and Derek Wetmore. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Touch Em All podcast. This one from Overcast, but we'll take it, Target Field. We're actually sitting outside. Yeah. In the, uh, we're sitting in the Legends Club. Not because we're high rollers, but because they haven't actually opened the gates yet for fans, and so we're just poaching the high roller seats. Snuck in the side, yes. But overcast, you say, that's fine. Uh, The temperature's okay. And as we pleaded, begged and pleaded uh, this spring training, we asked the Twins, just get us to tax day. It is officially here as we record this, April 18th, tax day in the United States in 2017. So thank you, Twins, for being relevant and fun and interesting all the way up until tax day. You failed your task last year. You couldn't get us to tax day because you started 0-9. Yeah. Well, now as we sit here recording this, watching the Twins take batting practice, uh, they are a game over 500, and we have a lot of things we're going to dive into in just a second. But we promised last week we're going to give away a Brian Dozier bobblehead, and we're going to maybe do this throughout the season and give some things away that we have in our uh, 1500 ESPN prize closet. We're going to give away a Brian Dozier bobblehead, to a person who specifically follows these directions Uh and gets lucky and wins. It's a combination of (laughs) skill and luck, right? much like batting average on balls in play, much like Babbitt. Put yourself in the right position, hit a lot of line drives, fly balls. These things will take care of themselves over time, yes. Yes, so this is the Twins Touch-Em-All Trivia Challenge. And for those of you watching on Facebook Live right now, either live or on demand, you'll have a chance to win as well. Sure. We're going to draw at random... A winner who follows these instructions. Email the correct answer once we give the question here. Email the correct answer to dwetmore at 1500ESPN.com by noon on Friday. That's me. That'll go to my team of assistants. They will dutifully handle all of the inbound emails, figure out who gets the right answer on this trivia question, and then our teams of assistants will get together, pick a winner from that group, and I think that's as complicated as we're going to make it. Right. We have to find the assistance first because right. <laughs> we don't have any yet. But. Oh, also, we're looking for assistance. Yes. Uh, subject line trivia. So I'm going to read the question in just a second yep. here, but 1500, uh, D. Wetmore at 1500ESPN.com. Subject line trivia. If you get the answer correct, we will draw at random from the people who got it correct. So yep. step one is get it correct. Step two is get lucky. Here's the question. And this is based off Kyle Gibson getting rocked around a little bit the other night. Uh, 29 and a half years old, former first-round pick. He may or may not be part of this answer. The question is, name the two pitchers drafted in the first round by the Twins since 1990, since 1990. to win at least 50 career games. Okay, 50 wins, drafted in the first round, drafted by the Twins or won 50 games drafted, with the Twins? Drafted by the Twins. The wins could come with anyone. Okay, so it's so a Twins dra- first-round pick. Drafted by the Twins mm. since 1990 with at least 50 career wins. There mm. are two pitchers in this category. 
And if you name them correctly in an email to dwetmore at 1500ESPN.com, we yes, okay. may or may not be drawing you randomly for a Twins okay. Brian Dozier bobblehead. Okay. Right? So get it right, then get lucky. and Correct. And we'll get you a bobblehead. <laughs> a lot like uh, college for you. Well, for all of us. In theory. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Let's start. I want to. I want to give you just. I've been. I've been here for a couple days now. You've been here, spring training. You covered the Twins in spring training. So, we've both had a lot of conversations with various people about the new Twins front office. And sure. I'm just starting to sort of piece together some of the things that I like about this new front office. And these are things that I've seen just in the first two weeks of the regular season. So I want to throw three things at you. We can kick them around as I throw these out. Three things I like about the new Twins front office or things that the Twins are implementing because of the new front office. Okay. Derek Fowler, right. Thad Levine. Three okay. things I like about the Twins' new front office. And we're not really within earshot of them, but I, I'm looking at their offices over here across the way. It's on the exact opposite side of the ballpark. I, so. I just assume that everything is bugged right now. So. That's right. Yeah. Well, Blink three times if you need help. No, it wouldn't even matter because... Uh, Frequent subscribers to the Touch Them All podcast, I'm sure. In fact, they'll probably have a pretty good idea of our trivia question, so maybe not really fair to our regular listeners. Yeah, actually, there's a couple tricks. It's pretty easy to find some of this stuff if you know your way around the Internet. But yeah. um, but thing number one that I really like, okay, they have emphasized uh, more, than, more than most teams, I think, in this position, the drastic emphasization, if that's even a word that I can use. I think emphasizing. Emphasis is, emphasis is emphasis, probably fair. yeah. Um, of outfield defense. Okay. And I went back and just just out of curiosity, and I don't know if it correlates like this every year, but just last year alone, according to defensive runs saved, which is not gospel, it's not to be taken as uh, the Bible of quantifying how good your fielders are, but if you just look at defensive runs saved and outfield defense alone last year, yeah, the top teams were the Red Sox, Royals, Astros, Cubs, Rays, Dodgers, Yankees, Mets, and Blue Jays. Those teams averaged 87 yeah. wins last Some season. Good wins on uh, good if, teams on that if list. If you take away the Rays, who couldn't hit for a lick and only won 68 games, which for them is sort of an aberration if you look at their last nine years, those teams averaged 90 wins. So the, this front office clearly understands how valuable a great outfield defense is to the overall picture of winning. They brought in Jeff Pickler to be sort of a defensive coordinator to help with positioning, to help with angles and sure. routes and other different things behind the scenes and um, they've stopped playing statues like Miguel Sano and Robbie Grossman for significant innings in the outfield. Josh Willingham, Oswaldo Arcia. Yes. Yeah, Ryan Domit. I mean, the oh, list goes on and on. On down that it's list. It's the first time at Target Field in the seven or eight year history that they've emphasized outfield defense and it's working so far through two weeks. Well, uh, three things off of this and one is that it's ironic uh, ironic? It's funny to me that you said uh, that defensive runs saved are by no means intended to be sort of the Bible of defensive metrics. You know that DRS is derived from John Dewan's formula out of the fielding Bible. Literally, he calls yeah, yeah, it the yeah, fielding yes, Bible. Correct, yes. So I thought that was funny that you said that. I kind of snickered. Uh, <laughs> that would be irony, I think. Yeah. I think also the point that, uh, that first that I think Pickler's a good hire. I think that in my conversation, I had one conversation with him the other day where I was like, wow, holy you're just you are thinking even uh, among people who kind of nerd out on baseball and stuff you're just on another realm like there's just another platform that you reach that that I mean I can I can hang I can keep I hear what you're saying but I wouldn't have 
thought about this stuff that you're just sort of effortlessly spouting off. I was really, really impressed with not only his presentation, but just his in-depth knowledge. Do you have of the like a, a specific thing that he said, or just an anecdote that yeah. goes, like that you can share specifically? Yeah, yeah. And let me first say that he was never an outfield coordinator before, so this is like brand new to him. This is his first year doing this stuff. It was uh, Lavelle and I went to talk to Pickler after a play. There was a man on second with one out, and Danny Sa- and the Twins were up by a run. And Danny Santana was playing left field, and a ball gets hit over his head. Okay, so you're tracking so far? One out, man on second, one run lead, ball hit over the left fielder's head. And Santana has to decide when he goes to field that ball at the wall in left field, am I going to throw into second base to try to keep the trail runner at first and keep a double play in order and just concede that the tying run is going to score? Or should I try to be a hero and make a throw all the way through, go to the plate, while knowing full well that there's some percentage chance that he still scores even if he made that throw and you're automatically guaranteeing the runner gets to second base do you remember the play it was it's like that's a really obscure thing to bring up it was in the royal series the uh, first I, I was i was drunk I, yeah. Yeah, I, quite frankly <laughs> yeah i danny santana might have been too uh, i'm just kidding he because because after talking with people i thought at first as danny's taking batting practice right here now that's kind of funny I thought at first, wow, he made a mistake of a play. And after talking with, like, five people about the play, including Molitor and Jeff Pickler, I was like, you know what? Actually, Danny Santana made a reasonable decision in that place. And the decision was to throw to second base, try to get the out at second base because the Royals' trail runner, the hitter, was going for second. Santana basically had already conceded the run. Hmm. The reason I thought it was a mistake is because the guy stopped at third base, and if he had just thrown it into the cutoff man... You maybe keep the guy at first base, and you keep the guy at third base. Now, runners at the corner, you preserve the lead, and you still got an out. Double plays in order, you could get out of the inning. So I thought, well, that's maybe a mistake. It turns out there are two things happening in a split second on that play. And this is all not my insight. This is from Jeff Pickler. I'm just totally stealing it. He said, not only does Danny Santana have to decide, basically before he even turns back to the infield, he has to decide where he's going with that ball. But Jorge Polanco, who's playing shortstop in that instance, also has to decide where is he going to throw it. Am I going to line up to be the cut to home plate, or am I going to line up to be the cut to second base? Not only do those guys have to make a split-second decision, but it has to be the same decision. Interesting. That's what ended up screwing up for the Twins, and Pickler basically said, yeah, we practice this kind of thing a lot. We talk to them about the situation. We do this in spring training so that when they're in that position in a regular game, mm-hmm. they've already experienced before. And I'm thinking, wow, that's like a really granular, yeah. specific thing to practice. Now, they ended up making different decisions. Polanco got caught kind of in no man's land. Danny Santana tried to airmail the throw all the way to Dozier at second base, and they muffed the throw, and runner was safe. Then the run comes home, tie ball game. The Twins ended up winning that game, but it was still such an interesting thing to me. I wrote about it in my Five Thoughts column that Pickler just dove so deep, so effortlessly into the decisions that go into that play, the geometry of it all. It was See, that it blew stuff, my mind. It was fascinating. That matters so much. I think we get so focused on earned run average with pitchers. Sure. We get focused on was it an error or was it not an error. And we don't focus enough collectively because it's just it doesn't show up in ERA. It doesn't show. We don't focus on the gaps where a runner might get an extra base or two or a team might score an extra run or two on a play that wasn't an error or on yeah. a ball that wasn't dropped. Right. But something And the Twins happened. won, so you might be yeah. saying you're picking nits going back. Yeah, it might even be that, and I remember this just watching Josh Willingham in left field, how often there'd be 
a low-line drive over the shortstop's head that goes into left center field. And most left fielders would run over, like, for instance, if uh, Eddie Rosario is playing yeah. that ball. He runs over, cuts it off, and the runner rounds first base. The ball would just keep rolling and rolling and rolling to the 377 sign, and Willingham yeah. would go and pick it up, and he'd throw it in. And it's not an error, right. certainly not an error. It's not going to be... It's not going to hurt his fielding percentage, but now it's a double. Right. And there's a runner on second base with nobody out instead of a runner on first base with nobody out maybe 20 times per season. Yeah, and that's a <laughs> and world that of difference up. in run expectancy. Correct. I, I think, back to your point on just kind of like coordinating the outfield, the thing that's been interesting to me is that they are asking, when they do have the speedy trio out there of Rosario, Buxton, and Kepler, now we'll see how long they can keep that trio together because Buxton can't pull his weight at the plate. But wondering... Uh, why they're playing shallower this year. And it turns out, well, that's a mathematical calculated decision. They've decided we've got guys that are fast enough to, look, if the ball's going to be hit to the wall, it's a double anyways. And our guys are fast enough that it's not a triple. So if we play shallower than most outfields, and the Royals have been doing this for a couple of years, so it's not like the Twins are inventing a new way of playing defense. But if they play a little bit shallower... And now all of a sudden, Buxton can break in on that ball that's kind of a sinking liner in shallow center field that used to just be a single, and you'd scoop it up and throw it in a second. Now, if that's an out, that's a huge difference over the course of 162 games, and you've already seen it in play with the Twins. Correct. Um, Yes. And I'm sure that one of the themes on the podcast this entire summer is going to be outfield defense, and it's already made a big difference with some of the pitchers. Like Hector Santiago is a fly ball pitcher. And it's really early, and it's been three starts, but he has a 1.47 earned run average. He's on pace to win the Cy Young Award. Correct, It's amazing. Yes. But the Twins have, between Phil Hughes and Irvin Santana and Hector Santiago, those are fly ball, mostly fly ball pitchers. And if Byron Buxton winds up getting sent down at some point because his bat just can't hold up, and by the way, we I, I watched him take batting practice for 20 minutes around 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you know, a few hours before this Tuesday game. Everything he hit was to the right of second base yeah. very consciously. But when you when you have to break the news of Byron Buxton's demotion at some point, if that happens to Phil Hughes and Hector San, Santiago, your fly ball pitchers, those guys are going to be more devastated than anybody sure. else. There goes a half run to your ERA at, like, at least. Yes. Uh, I, I, we, we can get into other things here because, to me, it's a let's let it play out. I think outfield defense is an important thing, and certainly you've harped on it a lot. I am a little wary of... Okay, but you don't you don't become a super team by having three defensive players out there. That's the first step. You definitely improve your pitching. The ultimate aspiration, I think every front office would agree with this, have three guys who are rangy, athletic, with big arms, who can also get on base at a 380 clip and play awesome on both sides Which of the ball. may have never happened in the history of baseball, <laughs> but yes. You know, that's the ultimate <laughs> aspiration. Uh, thing number two that I've seen playing out in the first couple weeks, influenced by the new front office that I really like. Yeah platoons sure offensive okay. platoons they essentially now they've used a million different lineups but they use similar lineups against lefties you know they'll stack certain combinations of players and then a different one with combinations against righties yeah for instance and by the way teams that have one lineup and only one lineup either a you have amazing players one through nine and you have a bunch of money to fill in those gaps. Yeah. Or you're probably not being as efficient as you could be. Not getting the most out of with, those with your With your platoon splits. Robbie Grossman is is a really good hitter against left-handed pitching. And so he hits either first, second, or third in most of these lineups. 
Uh, Max Kepler is really good against right-handed pitching, and so you've seen him bat second, bat mm-hmm. third, bat fourth against right-handed pitchers. And they're sitting Joe Maurer against at least two or three left-handed starting pitchers so far, acknowledging his putrid average against those lefties last year. Those, you know, it, it, it might not show up every single time you put together those lineups, but over the course of a full season, if you can increase your OPS against lefties and or righties by 20 or 30 points just based on platoon, that might be an extra win or two or five or whatever it may be. I contend that it's not that big of a deal this year, but it's a very great sign for the future, that the Twins will always try to squeeze the most wins out of their roster that they can. Look, I don't think they're winning the World Series this year. I've made no secret about that this winter on the podcast. Wow, that's a bold proclamation. Did you hear this the other bold day, Phil Mackey? As we sit here and watch, I might change that. Miguel Sano hitting top tank home runs in, in batting practice. Um did you hear when Derek Falvey was addressing the media yesterday? It was the just before the Indian series. And so Cleveland media wanted to talk to him. Hey, congratulations. You know, uh, what's it like in your new job? You know, you left the Indians after Game 7 of the World Series, and now you run the Twins. That's something, huh? <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so the Minnesota media was, was there talking to him, too, because it was fun to hear him tell stories about Tito and, and how much Terry Francona meant to him in his time there and just – just things that he brought from Cleveland. It was kind of unique to get that other perspective. We've had the Minnesota perspective since November. Now it's kind of cool to see the Cleveland perspective too. And and he said something, and I know you were standing right there, but I don't know if you heard this, when Falvey called it, 2017 is kind of, you know, it's fun and interesting for us. It's a learning year. You guys spent all winter making fun of me for saying that 2017 is a learning year for the Twins, and then big boss dog Derek Falvey drops that well, did you, in a did media you steal session. That from him, or did you use it? I don't. I, I'm pretty sure. The same language. No, I'm pretty sure that I I said that uh, on your guys' show in like uh, this was on the Mackie and Judge show in like November or something. Maybe it was December. So definitely hadn't had that many opportunities to talk with Falvey uh, about what. What he saw See, call, for this year. Calling what's likely to be, even though they're they're off to a good start, what's likely to be a losing season for the Twins, calling it a learning year in advance. Spin room. It reminds me, Dave Winfield used to say, there's no such thing as slumps. There are only periods of statistical adjustment. <laughs> Which is correct. Yeah, yeah, my dude, my statistics right. are adjusting right now. <laughs> I will get back to you when I know more. Seeking my level <laughs> currently and... I was above my level before. Yeah, that's that's because that probably mentally helps too when you're uh, when you're riding a hot streak. You're thinking it's not a hot streak. I'm a good hitter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Uh, and then thing number three that I've observed that I that I like so far about the Derek Falvey Thad Levine front office. Sure. Position flexibility. Hey guys, before we continue on with the rest of this Touch 'Em All podcast, it's Phil Mackey here for all of you Twin Cities area listeners. To tell you about Luther Brookdale Toyota, 694 and Brooklyn Boulevard is the location. My family and I have been going to this car dealership and service department for three-plus decades, and there's a reason for that. It's the best in the business, the smartest and friendliest people in the business. They'll treat you like family. So find out why my family and I have been going to the same dealership and service department for multiple decades right on the corner of 694 and Brooklyn Boulevard, LutherBrookdaleToyota.com. They are, they understand the value in maybe maybe you don't have gold glovers at multiple positions up and down your team, but there's value in Sano playing first base and third base. There's value in they they have for instance this season 
six players who've played multiple positions already in the first two weeks and a couple more who could if needed. Like Byron Buxton, if he needed to play left yeah, field, they right. could play le- but he plays center field. Byron, and well, Brian Dozier t- could play shortstop if he needs to play shortstop. That's, he came up as a shortstop. Yeah, uh, like who is playing center field in this hypothetical outfield where Byron needs to play in a corner? Right, I mean, yeah. yes. <laughs> okay. At one point they did have Ben Revere playing right field, and he was clearly a center fielder. But, but I think having, you know, let's say – Eight to ten guys on your sure, team sure. among yeah. the 12 position players who can play multiple positions, that helps you if a guy goes down. It helps yep. you with lineup construction and things like that. I think it's really valuable to have a couple of those guys, especially if you're going to play with a short bench like the Twins have asked Paul Molitor to do right now. They're saying, hey, we want the pitching. We don't have anybody else that we want that that fourth spot. I mean, that's what they're saying, right? They haven't said this out loud, but that's what they're saying. We don't have four guys that we think are worth a big league roster spot on a bench right now. I think you can disagree with that if you want to, you know, if you want to pick places where you think it might be more valuable to have bench flexibility. But having said that, if that's your roster constraint, if your roster constraint is we will have 13 pitchers and 12 position players, three guys sitting on the bench, it's really nice to have somebody that can play shortstop, third base, second base. A. Ray Adrianza's working his way back from an injury. I wonder what that roster construction might look like when he's healthy because there's another guy who could play every infield position if he needed to. I think it's really helpful to have a couple of those guys, your Ben Zobrist, sort of like skeleton keys, right, that just play anywhere you need them to. But I also wonder, like, is it valuable to have Chris Jimenez play third base or Chris Jimenez play in right field? Or how good is Robbie Grossman going to be in a corner outfield spot this year? I'm watching it. I'm curious. I'm not, you know, writing these guys off necessarily. But I am curious to see... How much is too much, if that's a thing? Well, so you, I, I agree with your basic point that it's a good thing to have these players. Yes, like do I want Chris Jimenez to be my starting third baseman for three months? Yeah, probably not. Probably not. No. But do I like the fact that the process says, hey, we need as many guys to play as many positions as possible because we just want more combinations. Sure. We want to, we want to be more flexible. There's been so many years in the last three or four where the Twins come north from Fort Myers with like, Eight designated hitters, you know, like sure. Arcia and Willingham and sure. Byung-Ho Park and Kenny Vargas. Well, they can't all stand at first base with a first baseman's glove. Yeah, <laughs> The Twins are going to be the first team ever to have four guys just hovering around first base, and they just pray that no one hits it to left field. And then we all praise them for their <laughs> analytics and heat maps and defensive shifting. Uh, here's one thing that I want to see, because I don't disagree with any of the three things that you said almost overwhelmingly positive signs from the the new Twins front office, things that they've talked about or implemented already. Here's another one for free. It's not on the three list, but Falvey in that conversation that I talked about uh, earlier, he said that he was really blessed to, as he was kind of rising the ranks in Cleveland's front office, he always had a seat at the table. They'd be talking about a trade or a big free agent acquisition, and they invited Derek Falvey, basically no matter what his role was, he was part of those conversations. Now, is he making the decision as a you know twenty six year old scouting director or what, whatever? I'm making up the ages. No, of course he's not making the decision. But that he's exposed to the thought processes, that he's exposed to how decisions are made, who influences what, um, tendencies for guys to think different things and and have room for healthy disagreement. That's a really valuable thing, I think for a 20-something to be exposed to, and now he's turned that forward, and he says anyways that when he has conversations like that for the Twins, should we sign Jason Castro? Well, it's not him and Thad Levine sitting in a bunker trying to make the decision. Well, is he worth it? Is he not? He's inviting 
everyone to the table. He says basically everyone in the front office is going to be sitting there, and I bet you scouts are there too, and scouting reports are there, prominently represented. He has Torrey Hunter there, Latroy Hawkins, Michael Kadire in some cases. Like These things matter, and I think that's an important way to go about. Now, ultimately, who makes the decision? Well, Derek Falvey does. That's That's how it has to be. But... I think it's a smart thing to get just a lot of feedback, a lot of input from a bunch of different smart people. I found it interesting, him telling the story yesterday, Derek Falvey, about the evolution of his relationship with Terry Francona, how the the third day they knew each other when Terry Francona signed on, sometime in in the winter, like three or four years ago, to be the manager... And Derek Falvey, who had been there for like six years at the time, I think I think Falvey had been there for five or six okay. years when Terry Francona signed on to be the manager. And Francona broke his glasses or something and needed some new readers. While or some he new was glasses. working for ESPN, still he had yes. some broadcasts to do. Yep. And so Falvey, who would do things like fix the printer and little tasks here and there, wound up having to find a, a, a glasses store somewhere in the area to go buy. Terry Francona, a new set of readers, and their relationship evolved to the point where Falvey was on the road a lot, helping mm-hmm. with um, various items, whether it's lineup construction or just talking the uh, through the layers of pitching and developing. And Terry Francona raves, and I don't think he's just putting on a show. He raves on the record and off the record about Derek Falvey. Yeah. And Falvey even said yesterday when he ran into Tito in the in the clubhouse area for the first time since you know becoming the the twin CBO, he almost started crying because he views Terry Francona as that much of a mentor to him. Yeah. So when smart people like Terry Francona are validating the job that Derek Falvey has done to this point in his career, I think it's a good sign for the Twins and Twins fans. Yeah. Have you heard I'm anybody... i the Kool-Aid in case you couldn't tell. Have you heard anybody Shocking. that has said, like, Ooh, I don't know, Twins, uh, they're not sure what they're thinking hiring this kid. It's basically been overwhelmingly positive. So, yeah. I mean, I take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. I tend to be a skeptic. But so far, nothing but good news. Here's one thing I want to... Three things I want to see, actually. This will be a teaser for a future episode, Phil. Um... Three things that I want to see from the Twins front office and Paul Molitor in 2017. The learning year. I want to see him stick with Miguel Sano at third base, for for better or worse. I, I don't care if he has a terrible season as a third baseman. He's already made some mistakes that we're not really focusing on yet because Byron Buxton's been so such a hack at the plate. But like Miguel Sano has had some turbulence at third base. I want to see them stick with it all year, no matter what, just so you know. You got to have a definitive answer to that this sure. winter. So that's one thing. Two, I want them to do the same thing with Jorge Polanco, but I want them to turn him into a good shortstop. I think development doesn't stop once you reach the majors. I think development continues throughout your entire oh, major league look career. Look at Corey Koski and Justin Morneau. Sure, the day they broke in as third and first baseman, and then the day they left as third and first baseman. Michael Kadire was a bad infielder turned decent outfielder. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's got to there got to be other Trevor Plouffe. Started as a hack shortstop, moved to become a reliable third baseman. He yeah. dealt with a lot of injuries, so like his Twins career numbers don't look very good. But Trevor Plouffe's a solid defensive third baseman. Um, so turn Jorge Polanco. This is a challenge, and I'm not sure it's a challenge that anybody could do. But, hey, this is your job. This is what you're employed to do. Turn Jorge Polanco from uh, questionable, iffy, possible future shortstop to, oh, yeah, there's our shortstop. Jorge Polanco, because he's that kind of hitter. He's the kind of hitter that you've got to find a spot for. And if it's at shortstop, they're going to be in a lot better situation than if he has to be a second baseman. Because um, then you got two second basemen. So any, that's that's number two. Number three, it's stick with Byron Buxton. Have 
tons of patience, have a world of patience for Byron Buxton as an offensive player, and then fix that one too. That one's going to be a harder one to do. Much easier said than done. I recognize that. I fully understand. Um, But don't give up on him in three weeks because he's got a bad weighted on base average and you think he can get a better one by going to Rochester. I don't think he can. I I think you need to fix him here yeah, in, major, one, in the major leagues. One la- I agree with everything you just said. Uh, one last thing on Buxton, and then we should... They're starting to clean the row of seats beneath yeah, us here, so we should probably out. get out of here. But um, I'm with you. I don't know how much... If he goes down and mashes AAA pitching for a yeah. month... What have you learned? I don't know. Not that that would be a worthless experience, but it wouldn't show him... He'd still come up with the same doubts, because it's happened before where he's gone up and down, had an offseason... He needs to conquer the doubts in his mind and just in reality um, up here in the big leagues. If he can just be Kevin Kiermeyer at the plate, Kevin Kiermeyer probably slightly better defensively. Just he's one of the best defensive center fielders we've seen in years. Is not a great hitter. Gets on base at like a 300, 330 ish clip somewhere in that mix. Hits like 12 home runs, steals a few bases, and he's like a five win player for the, a four five win player for the Rays. That gets you to all-star games, and that helps your team a ton. So that gets you a big contract. Correct. All right, we've now we've we. I think they've cranked the music on us. This and is like, isn't this the <laughs> Emmys where they start team. the music and they're like, okay, hurry up, get the podcast over, boys. We're being played off. Yes. So that's it for another episode of Touch 'Em All. Uh, trivia, hit us up. Uh, D Wetmore at fifteen hundred ESPN dot com. But of course, if you haven't heard the rules by now, you probably just rewound it. So good for you for following Phil's directions. I'm looking forward to giving away a Brian Dozier ball. Did you give him the timeline on that? It has uh, to be before Friday at noon. You tried to noon. make it Friday at midnight. I try. I want. I, I wanted to give you people like Saturday midnight or like <laughs> end of Thursday. I don't. Just I wanted noon. to give you people twelve more hours, but Phil, I guess, being a podcast uh, trivia stickler, that's fine. <laughs>